Hello. Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, we're discussing SST 187, the Brian Ritchie Adam Krieg 12 inch. You just hopefully listened to our last episode, the Brian Ritchie Nuclear War 12 inch. This is the Deutsch version of that. And we've got, as mentioned in the last episode, a special guest for this episode as well. Yeah, John Cruth Part 2. Awesome. Can't wait to talk about that one. Like I said, just when you thought your mind got blown listening to John in Episode 1, strap yourself in for this one. Yeah. Now, Brant, in terms of spiels, we got to talk about some more stuff that people sent to us, hey? Man, people are so nice to us. They always send us stuff in the mail. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's going to take a lot longer for stuff to get to us in the mail now, apparently, hey? Is it? I don't know. Everyone, the news keeps saying that everything's grinding to a halt. Mm. I don't know. All right. Well, Who knows? What, what are we talking about here? So, first thing that we should talk about is this Baculum CD that was sent to us by Steven Anderson of Slovenly. Yeah, so I've wanted to hear this since Steve mentioned it to me way back when I was prepping for probably our first Slovenly episode. He mentioned this Baculum, My Friends Are Junkies is the name of the, the CD, 2002. Three Beads of Sweat is the label. Uh, it's the Slovenly crew, mostly. Tim Plowman, Scott Zeigler on guitars, Lynn Johnston on bass clarinet. Ryan, Matt Hoffman of Bully Pulpit plays on a track. Aha. What a coincidence. Wow. Yep. Lotus Pool connection. Yep. Nice. Sam Goldman, who we haven't seen yet, but we will way, way later on Slovenly's final album, plays on it. It's just an amazingly weird, avant-garde, like, I don't even know what I would even compare it to for another band. Yeah. You got Steve doing his thing over top of just sheer weirdness. Yeah, it's got, like, jangly, dissonant... uh, mellower like kind of mellow tunes i guess clarinet marimba accordion strings it's kind of a laid back low-key affair i would say um reminiscent of slovenly for Mm -hmm. sure fans of steve for sure like yeah yeah fans of slovenly should really check this out it's actually called my friends became junkies oh sorry yeah yeah the disc so but people should check this out any fan of slovenly would dig this record yeah i don't know where you would find this like uh, I, yeah, I, I, it's not up anywhere. Like here, yet another one that should be up on Bandcamp for people to check out. Uh, my favorite one is the one where Steve's t- stel- telling the stories of the three different people who got rabies and h- how they oh, got yeah. it. <laughs> it made me excited to get to Slovenly again. My only complaint with this record is that Scott Zeigler didn't credit himself as Scott Baculum for this release. Ah. Yeah, Scott was in uh, Overpass yeah. as well too, hey? Hey, Ryan, um, just a bit of a slovenly spiel here. Um, and here's one thing that you could compare this record to uh, that maybe our listeners might have heard, the Dingle Red yep. Dog album. Uh, many of these same musicians released on New Alliance Records in 1994. It's Scott, Sam, Steve, Bruce Todd, Phil Smoot, uh, they're kind of the core of the group. Tim Plowman plays keys on it, you know, some tracks. Lynn Johnston is on it. 
uh, Jim Richards of Waldo the Dogface Boy, and Greg Ginn plays on a number of tracks as well. That record's super arty, experimental, jazzy, there's tape looping, noisy, again, super weird and avant-garde, but a fun listen. Mm-hmm. Ryan, have you heard the Tom Watson album Country and Watson from 2000? No, I have not. Okay, so check this out. Jim O'Rourke, who has collaborated with everyone, Henry Kaiser, uh, he was a member of Sonic Youth. Uh, he engineered at least half of the album, some of it's live. Playing on the record is drummer Brian Christofferson, uh, who we'll be seeing again in about 10 years on SST 357 <laughs> with the band Guns, Books, and Tools. And he also played in Saccharine Trust. He played on The Great One is Dead. Uh, Lynn Johnston's on it. Mayo Thompson, the leader of the Red Crayola. Uh, also S- Stephen Prina, who was also in the Red Crayola. And Tom Watson uh, was a member of Red Crayola. Mm-hmm. Played on a, a number of albums. But Ryan, Bob Mothersbaugh is all over this record. No way. Yeah. On the Tom Watson record? Yeah. Really? Yeah. The The album itself is all over the place. Mostly instro, although not entirely. It's mostly guitar-based, but like the guitar playing is, you know, it's pretty, pretty avant-garde. Yeah. If it's Tom, it's good. Yeah. And then the last one I wanted to mention in the slovenly camp on the tree is Hertz Round Table. Eight, like HZ Round Table. Birdbath, 12-inch EP from 1997 on Intonated Records out of Chicago. Uh, Steve Anderson on vocals. Thomas Banks of Bully Pulpit. Hmm. Mark Henning of Zoom. Scott Zeigler on bass. Recorded, Ryan, by Greg Freeman of Pell-Mell. It's short. It's only 20 minutes, uh, but it's cool. It, it's the one of these albums that probably sounds the most like Slovenly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've never checked that out. That's my uh, little slovenly spiel for you, Ryan. What about some literature? Literature. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Well, we also had sent to us a big stack of zines. Mm-hmm. Love a zine. Now, the first ones I'll talk about here came from our friend Michael T. Fournier. Now, he sent us, I think, like a, a selection one of the ones that I'll mention first here is called Policymaker. It's like a one-page pamphlet, kind of like a pandemic diary about his life, what he and his family are up to, as well as what projects he's working on, what he's listening to, what he's watching, um, and some quick musings on baseball trades. It's kind of like a a Michael T. Fournier update zine, I guess is what I would say. It's a tour, tour diary, except he's not tour. on tour. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, the other one that he sent that's similar, kind of like a pamphlet, called Cabildo Quarterly, which is another um, one where it's kind of like a fold over. This one's 11 by 17 and contains a collection of short stories and poems by various writers, but also contains a transcription of the excerpt from Dale Nixon's audiobook. Now we're grilling with gas. My journey from first call session musician (laughs) to the undisputed cookout king of Southern California. Our listeners will remember that 
made its uh, worldwide debut on our episode SST-166, The Black Flag Wasted Again. Um, someone transcribed it for Cabildo Quarterly. So um, Michael T. did. Yeah, he must. He must. <laughs> well, we actually get a shout out in that, too. He said, thanks. Thanks to us for uh, hooking him up with the Dale Nixon audiobook. Mm-hmm. Um, you can send submissions, though, to Cabildo Quarterly at gmail.com. 3000 ish words of fiction. Fire them on in. Um, probably the highlight for me, though, was these uh, zines called Zisk. Mm-hmm. Michael T. sent three issues of this. This is, uh, it's kind of subtitled the baseball zine for people who hate baseball zines and Mike Fournier and Mike Falloon are the guys behind this, the editors. Apparently it's been out for over two decades. Um, it has some great writing pieces in here. Like, uh, there's one, the whole edition is all about the building of Dodger stadium and the related controversy that was buried along with its construction. Various contributors. Uh, uh, there's a story about Bob Dylan and baseball, Bill Buckner and mustaches, uh, the band, the baseball project, you know, Scott McCaughey, mm-hmm. Steve, Steve Wynn, Peter Buck, uh, Mike Mills, Linda Pittman. These are very, very cool. You know, I'm a baseball fan. I'm a, I, I have to admit though, like, in the last five years or so, I have ended up being more of a nostalgic baseball fan than as much of an active baseball fan as I used to be. The writing, though, in these zines, it's right up there with William Stevens, the common law origins of the infield fly rule, which is like, you know, something that baseball fans and especially like legal baseball fans, <laughs> there's lots of rules in baseball, you know, and lots of disputes. And of course, the, uh, the infield fly rule, that William Stevens article is a classic. But there's th- some great nostalgia in here. The writing is right up there. So thanks to both of the mics for sending this and to you, Brant, for passing it my way and just like, you know, passing it off to me just like a zine should be. I'm going to package these up and send them to my buddy Derek because you'll love them too. Right on. Yeah. And hey, remember Michael wrote something for our blog, which is down, by the way, because we haven't paid the fee to have the... <laughs> But I think it's up on the... my it's it's uh, it's up on Michael's website though. Oh, is it? Pretty sure you can Google. Yeah, if Ichiro, Ichiro was journaling like Henry Rollins, right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ichiro Suzuki. It's a good read yeah. as well. There's a bunch of snail mail and email addresses in all of these various scenes. But the best place to go as a start would be to go to policy.bandcamp.com. Mm-hmm. That will that will get you to the various zines and links and stuff like that uh, to check out some of the writing that Michael was nice enough to send our way. Yeah. And finally, Brant, we got one more zine, kind of a comic zine called Regular Wiggler. And this is issue 27 it's um, it contains like cartoons, stories, kind of absurdist humor, I would say too. The main guy, Chris Amon from Chicago, he's a cartoonist and musician. Regular Wiggler is one of his comics or zines. He's got a few out there like Gray Flag. Got another one called Snakes. Another one called Old Joe. Maps. Uh, the one that I'd like to check out is called Used Records and Tapes. Yeah. Got to track that down. It's described as kind of a marriage between record stores and zines and bookstores. 
Um, Chris does that one with a guy named Mike Dixon. And it's kind of the advertising for that scene. It says it's putting the fun back into record reviews that can sometimes be too pretentious. So that one kind of seems cool to check out. Uh, Chris is also a musician too, though. I don't know if you checked out any of his bands. Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't know he was. Yeah, so Chris is also a musician in addition to a writer and cartoonist here. And you can find all of these on Bandcamp. One band is called Empire Smalls. Cool, kind of jangly, psych, indie pop. Another one called Soft Targets. Punky, grunge, indie, kind of got a Chicago sound to it, like like where Chris is from. That one I really liked, Soft Targets. That one is cool. Another band called Reagan National Crash Diet. Kind of indie rock, male and female vocals. Pretty cool. The one that I think you should you should check out, the one that I, like, when I heard Chris's bands, I'm like, oh, Brent would like this one. It's called Team Satan. Okay. So, yeah, it's kind of sped up punk. I have my notes here. It says Brent would like. Mm. <laughs> but you can uh, you can check out all those bands, Empire Small, Soft Targets, Reagan National Crash Diet, Team Satan on their Bandcap pages. Um, you can get to the regular Wiggler and all these other comics on roostercow.com or regularwiggler.com or chris-almond.com. But the highlight out of this regular Wiggler book is it's obviously like tongue-in-cheek, but it's really good. I'm going to set you up for it, Ryan, here, okay? Okay. okay. And I I have to say, like, he to- uh, when he sent us this, I believe what he said to me was that he was inspired by our podcast when he wrote this or when he drew this, this comic. So that's, I love hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, like he was listening to us while he drew this. So the, the, it's called Donald Trump on black flag. Longtime readers may recall that before he was elected POTUS, Donald Trump wrote record <laughs> reviews for regular wiggler. Now that he is out of the White House, we asked the Donald if he would return to his old post. Amazingly, he agreed to share his thoughts on the iconic American hardcore band Black Flag. Yeah. So there, there's like a fake interview by, well, I don't know if it's an interview or whatever, but it's basically what is the best Black Flag album? Who's the, what's the best song? Who's the best bass player? Best drummer? And then it's written in Trump's voice, which is great. So it goes, uh, best black flag album damaged. And then it, and then Trump writes, I've said this publicly. You can go and check damages the best black flag album. I've gotten a lot of credit for saying that I've had big, powerful skinheads, big, tough guys come up to me with tears in their eyes. And they say, thank you, sir. Thank you for saying that damaged is the best black flag record. Biden thinks live 84 is better. And it's a disgrace. (laughs) There's a few of these here. Uh, best best black flag drummer, Bill Stevenson. Definitely not Robo. He came here illegally. <laughs> if, if he would have gone back to Columbia or wherever and come here legally, then I would consider Robo. But Bill, Bill plays very strong, very powerful drums. I like Bill's powerful <laughs> drums. And then um, it's also worth mentioning too, Mike Dixon did the artwork for this article, the fake Trump black flag editorial and Mike's artwork is done kind of in a 
Raymond Pettibone style. Mm-hmm. And he's he's totally channeling Pettibone for this artwork oh, yeah. too. Picture of Trump like with a bunch of stacked up Big Macs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best black flag guitar player, Ryan. Greg Ginn, no question. Great businessman too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, cool. I want to check out that other one, though. Used records and tapes. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for sending us this. It's really awesome. Yeah. Right on. Ryan, should we get into this Brian Ritchie EP? Schnell, schnell. <laughs> History lesson, part one. Here we go, man. It's Adam Krieg. So we got a bit of a preview to this in the last episode, because there is the Deutsch component mm-hmm. of the nuclear war six minute and 50 second version but why don't i hit you with a couple of spaceman spiels here to tell you like what we're dealing with here okay oh, yeah. okay okay so i i wanted to do both of these back to back so one is the nuclear war 12 inch and then here's the adam krieg one okay yeah so i, I mean strictly speaking i probably should have done the nuclear war one in the last episode but it's better to hear these back to back on the adam krieg episode i thought Okay, here we go. Brian Ritchie, Nuclear War. Nuclear War. The Sun Ra Orchestra's Crypto Prayer to the Powers That Be is now available in a special extended dance format. Taken from Brian Ritchie's solo album, The Blend, this remix smokes. Backed by the song Alphabet, this is the pure power to dance to that you have been waiting for. Then it goes on right next to it. Adam Krieg. Do you understand German? Brian Ritchie does. He took the song Nuclear War from his solo album, The Blend, and cut a special dance mix with all the vocals in German, backed with yet another mix of Nuclear War. This is a continental treat from Brian to you. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure the the A-side, the Deutsch one, is just the LP version with German vocals. Maybe a yep. bit different mix, like the opening, that little bass lick at the beginning. It's got some guitar doubled on it, which I think is out of the mix on the studio version. It's the same length, though. Yeah, same length. They're both they're both the same length. Yeah. Ausfahrt. <laughs> <laughs> you know where you know where all roads lead to. Ausfahrt. Ausfahrt. That's yeah. right. No means no forever. Yeah, and then the B-side, the English version, is the same as the A-side that we heard last week. Yeah. Yeah. History lesson, part two. So what do you think, Brent? Should we toss it over to John for part two, Ski? Yeah. All right, we're back with John Kruth. Now, John, last time we talked, you were mentioning, you know, some of your solo records and, you know, the various femmes played on some of them. If nobody's heard a John Kruth solo record like one of the ones under your own name where's a good place to start where would you boy, point them boy uh you really pinned me there because they're all very different affairs you know midnight snack is the one that features all three violent films and that was my first record that i made in greenwich village um and there's some really interesting things on on that record as far as each song being like a different experience but um probably my favorite album i made about 
three years ago now in Italy with a band from um, Spoleto. It's called Forever Ago, and we recorded it in Spoleto. And what was amazing about this, which is in Umbria, about 75 miles north of uh, Rome. And this was very much my own band the band and Bob Dylan kind of thing. These guys have been playing together. Some of them have been playing together, I think since they were teenagers wow. and living all in this wooded area up in, uh, up in, uh, in, in Umbria. Umbria means wooded, uh, like woods. And so we had this house that had a recording studio in it and we would rehearse for part of the, in the morning and then uh jaluka's mother would make this fabulous italian fresh you know pasta and 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 salad and everything we would drink wine and we would you know relax for a while and then we would go down to the studio and record and i i never had this opportunity before with guys that really, really had been playing together for a long time and uh, that were, you know, such wonderful musicians. And what was really great is there was another, you know, there were uh, another guy that played mandolin in an Italian style. So I'm playing in my kind of banshee mandolin, my kind of bluesy, rocky mandolin style and playing guitar. And they have these... Uh, a, a, an amazing chord, an accordion player, and it was like, it was like, it was like my daydream of of Dylan and the band up in Woodstock coming true. Except my version was in Italy, right? So that album is called Forever Ago, and you know you can find it on Bandcamp. Um, it was put out in Italy, so it's kind of hard to find. But then there was another album that I made that was all instrumental called the cherry electric and that's probably my perennial um that came out around 1995 and that was with a milwaukee band called uh the milwaukee creative music ensemble they had been part of another band called the wild kingdom which became another band called citizen king which recorded for uh warner brothers and so these guys were like a mix of like hip hop and weather report guys. And they were like, Oh, well, we thought you were a folk musician. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. But it was like, I had these instrumentals and that's how I got into this whole world music thing and uh, playing like funk and world music combination. And then that turned into Tribekistan, which made Tribekistan made seven albums was a, a New York downtown music ensemble, which stretched to be, 10 pieces which had members of who played with Santana and Taj Mahal and Aretha Franklin and uh Mink DeVille and and uh that was quite an interesting ride that was mostly instrumental and that band that band did pretty well for a while mm-hmm. toured Europe Russia the States and uh that's been gone now for about three or four years. And I've just been back to making solo stuff, but I've also gone through a number of health issues over the years. And, uh, and whenever that 
when that first happened, I, I, the doctor just said, you know, you got to stop what you're doing and, uh, you better stay home. And I don't even want to know what you're doing, but you better quit it or you're going to be dead. Hmm. That was when I turned 40. And, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I started writing an article on uh, Rasan Roland Kirk because he was a, the great multi-instrumentalist who had an enormous effect on, on me. I, I loved his music and, and I just saw him as a, as a true hero. And I started writing an article about him and, and that turned into a book. I met Joel Dorn, the great producer from Atlantic Records, who produced Rassan, Yusef Latif, Mose Allison, Les McCann and Eddie Harris, uh, Bette Midler, Roberta Flack, Allman Brothers. Joel was, the, he was my dream producer, who I always wanted him to produce one of my records. And actually, he put out one of my records and wrote the liner notes to it on his label, though he didn't produce it. So I met him and, and uh, he always liked to joke that he produced that book <laughs> because he, he would say stuff like, have you talked to Yusuf yet? And I'd go, uh, Yusuf Latif? And he'd go, no, Yusuf Schwartz. And he'd, he'd just lean <laughs> over and punch you know, his telephone and go, Yusuf, I got a kid here. I'm a kid. Uh, I, I got a kid here. He's writing a book. I'm writing a book. Uh, you know, he's writing a book on Rasan and he wants to talk to you. And suddenly I am in the presence of Yusuf Latif. Now, don't get me, you know, don't think that I'm being like total ridiculous fanboy. But for me, Yusuf Latif was the fifth beetle or the sixth rolling stone. Right. You know, I mean, so to meet Yusef Latif and to interview him and, you know, and tell him, look, I play flute too, you know, and da, 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 da. That was, uh, that was coming back to uh, New York in 95, 96. That was a, a whole different new phase of my life. I started writing the book on Ross on Roland Kirk and that came out and the publisher's like, okay, so what's the next book? <laughs> and I thought about writing a book on Eric Dolphy, but I couldn't get much, you know, I couldn't get much support on it. So, uh, you know, um, well, Towns Van Zandt, man, he's got some unbelievable stories, you know, they're incredible stories about Towns Van Zandt. And I played a lot of the same clubs as Towns Van Zandt. And I certainly knew a lot of people that knew Towns Van Zandt. And so I thought this would be, I mean, I just wrote a book on one of the great underdogs of jazz. So now I'm going to write a book on the great underdog of country, folk, whatever you want to call towns. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing a book on Towns Van Zandt, which was really made a lot of sense because, you know, I knew John Prine, I knew Peter Rowan, I knew a, a lot of the guys that knew towns played the same clubs so it was like i could get the smell i could get the feel i could get the atmosphere it wasn't a hard thing for me to do until i met guy clark of course and he pulled a knife on me but that's oh. another story <laughs> um you know so all of a sudden i'm writing books you know, it's like I had written record reviews here and there or interviewed like if I was on 
if I was on a bill with Taj Mahal or if I was on a bill with John Prine or if I was on a bill with, you know, because I was an opening act for a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, if they were a cool person, if they were as cool as I thought they were or are open, I would sit there and put on my little tape recorder and talk with them or photograph them because that's really how I started. I was in art school and, and I, uh, I started photographing people like, uh, you know, Dr. John and um, Richie Havens, hmm. you know? So if I, that's really how I got started as far as writing was concerned, because you would take a picture and try to sell it to the Minneapolis Tribune or, or star, whatever the paper was. And they would chop the shit out of your photograph, you know, they would just turn it into a headshot. And then, you know, I, I, you'd read an interview, you read an article about the Taj Mahal show and the guy would have it all backwards. He was saying that Taj was playing a mandolin when he was playing a banjo or that he was playing this and you know, I realized some of these writers didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> so I was like, well, how much do you pay for an article? It was a lot more than for a photograph. Right. So it was like, I could do that. But then that puts you in a really weird position. I've been in a very weird position all these years, you know, because... You know, your friends want you to write about them and then they get upset if you say this or you say that. Right. So it, it was always kind of weird. I didn't know if maybe I was on the outs at one <laughs> point with the Thems because I wrote something that they didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> maybe your friends are suddenly a little more guarded around you wondering if. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, look, you can't blame them because then you become the man. But right. I, I always wrote as mostly, mostly as an appreciation or to educate because it just seemed like you know an educated crowd is the best crowd if they understand what the hell you're doing well cool and you have a new book out about uh, john and yoko's plastic ono band yeah that was uh that's my sixth book now i wrote a i wrote a biography on uh on roy orbison which was uh, if you told me a year before I started working on it that I was going to write a book on Roy Orbis and I would have gone really uh because I wasn't really the greatest fan mm-hmm. and but that also makes you very objective and as a historian um you know I don't want to write fanboy books I want to write about as much I want to get to as close to what was going on that I can possibly figure out. And that came about because you ever read Nick Tosh's book, uh, Hellfire on Jerry Lee Lewis? I yep. mean, just <laughs> tremendous. Yep. Just tremendous. I mean, Nick wrote some really great books. His book on Sonny Liston, his book on Dean Martin. I mean, that was a guy that could get me to read a book about somebody I didn't think I really cared about mm-hmm. and find out, how much how great it was and how you know and 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 delve into something that you know otherwise i would have would have passed me by and that's kind of like what happened with roy orbison i wanted to write about sun records i wanted to write to me sun records was like you know the mount rushmore 
of of rock and roll you know and 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 roy was like the fifth wheel of of that mount rushmore or, or of sun records you know there was already a great book on jerry lee there was already you know peter Grelnick wrote the two great books on 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 elvis johnny cash wrote his own biographies you know, autobiographies and and uh, Carl Perkins, he wrote an autobiography. It wasn't that great, but he wrote one. And I just thought, boy, who's the weirdo here? You know, who's the real weirdo here? And that's Roy Orbison. That's yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote a book called Rhapsody in Black, you know, and interviewed a lot of very interesting people. And, and uh, when Richard Thompson told me that the title Rhapsody in Black was where it was at, you know, he was like, oh, I like that title. You know, I knew I was on the right track. So, you know, so I did a book on Roy and that was, I didn't really expect to do that. And then uh, I wound up doing some other books. I wrote a 50th anniversary book on the making of Rubber Soul, which was a really important book to me. And then I wrote a book called A Friend of the Devil, which kind of grew out of the Towns Van Zant book because it was... Uh, all about the history of the outlaw song and all these different cultures. When I was interviewing John Prine or Richard Thompson or Steve Earle, uh, Peter Rowan, or any of these guys, Guy Clark, it always led to a conversation on the outlaw song as a form. And so that really interested me, Taj Mahal talking about Black Jack Davy, you know, or talking about Railroad Bill. And it was like, wow, there's a book here. So I did that book. And then what was I going to do? Well, I had become friends with Hal Wilner, the great, late, great producer, Hal Wilner. And I was actually his musical director for a handful of live shows and worked with him uh I was lucky to write the liner notes to his his uh, book. Uh, I mean, his his album of Gregory Corso's poetry set to music, and I was around for the recording of that. And Hal told me a number of times I had interviewed Hal for Wire magazine. You know, you, you, the needle test where you drop the needle needle on a record, and somebody goes, "Oh, that's T Rex," and that's from you know from the slider or oh that's you know so and so can or that's you know they identify it and they tell you about it i did one of those listening tests with with um hal wilner and one of the pieces that i used was cambridge 1969 from life with the lions by john and yoko and he just said that is just the most severe piece of music that exists on this planet <laughs> And I said, yeah, I used to use it to clear my uh, dorm room out in in college. You know, when the party was over, just go to Life with the Lions and drop the needle on side one. <laughs> because it is still, to this day, one of the most radical recordings that you'll ever hear. John's guitar playing is just off the freaking hook as far as his feedback and just what's going on there and uh, of course yoko and so that led to conversations about john and yoko and we both we both were the same age and both john and yoko's uh, plastic ono band records which came out in 1970 were really major 
you know, events for both of us. And the way that he started talking about it, he said that he really believed that, that, that those records, both of them, not just John's, but both of them were two of the greatest records he ever had heard in his life. That's Hal Wilner. And if you know Hal Wilner and you know what he produced and you know what he was involved with, that's saying a lot. Yeah. And I knew that Hal worked with uh, Bill Frizzell and I had met Bill through Ornette and Bill recorded a really beautiful album of John Lennon's songs with no lyrics and no singing. Now think about that, you know? John Lennon's songs, sure, they're really melodic and they really can touch you without hearing the words, but it takes a lot to really reach you with instrumental versions of Beatles songs. I mean, the first thing you're going to think of is, oh my God, you know, really intelligent music or something. Right. But I thought thinking like along the lines of Wilner or thinking outside the box or whatever, why not get uh, Bill Frizzell to write the introduction to the book on the plastic Ono band? You know, let's make him put it in words. Right, now. right. You know, and so like I started to realize I have a project. Here. This is definitely going to be an interesting uh, kind of thing to do. So that wound up being, you know, when you start out writing about Ross on Rolling Kirk and, and, and Towns Van Zandt, and then you start writing about the Beatles yeah. and John Lennon. And, you know, what was really exciting for me about writing that book, honestly, was to be able to write about Yoko. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw Yoko's show at the Everson Museum when I was 16 years old up in uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, and I had, I went to art school. I was very interested in conceptual art and, and uh, you know, met jo- Joseph Boys and, and, uh, and uh, all of that kind of stuff. So it was really interesting for me to be able to write about Yoko, especially in her pre-John phase, and you know when she was uh, when she was part of Fluxus, and she knew all these different people. So it, it allowed me n- to not have to write about music too for a change. So I really dug that. The name of that book is Hold On World. Okay. And uh, you can definitely find it on Amazon. You can find all my books on on Amazon or Goodreads. You know, if you don't want to be an Amazombie, you can go to Goodreads and, and find it there. I, I definitely get, gave Yoko her props. Mm-hmm. And that was the most radical thing that I could do, I believed. And, and, and I felt well-deserving of it. She's well-deserving of it. And I had, by the way, I had, there's a track on that record of Yoko's with Ornette and Ornette's quartet. And so I had interviewed Ornette already about that, about that session and about that concert. So I I have Ornette chiming in on Yoko in that book as well. That's awesome. Yeah, stuff like that's super important to get down. And a lot of these books about music really gloss over the certain area, eras of whatever 
musician or well, artist they're covering. The other thing is I'm a musician first. Yeah. I'm a, I've been a musician since, you know, I'm eight years old. I knew I was going to be a musician. I was playing guitar and I knew I was going to be a musician. And um, uh, I just interviewed James Blood Ulmer the other day for an upcoming article. He's 80, 81 years old now. And I've played with Blood before. I'm on one of his records. And, uh, and he said to me, he told me, and Ornette told me this. He said, you know, they were like, you know, it's important that you keep writing, man, because you play the music. So you know what the music is. You know what it, you know, where it's coming from historically. And you know what it is. You feel in it. And sometimes like, like I love uh, Ian Ian McDonald's uh, book, Revolution in the Head, uh, where he takes apart all the Beatles songs. Uh, really a great book. But Ian McDonald needed to plug in a damn guitar and make some noise or hit a snare drum to really, you got to feel this stuff, man. If you're not, you know, it's like I would tell any music writer, even if you don't know how to play, just sit behind a drum kit and hit it. Yeah. And 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 or plug in a guitar and make it feedback and get feel it. You got to feel it. And so that that to me has been it's not always an easy marriage, you know, because I, I would a usually rather be playing the music. But also, you know, Ornette used to say to me, man, you get, how, how can you go out and, and play for that kind of money? You can't, you, you just send your band out, tell them your band will do that, but you, you they got to pay you more. Yeah. You know, he used to just say, you can't live like that. How are you going to eat? How are you going to, you know, how are you going to pay your rent? And, uh, and thank God I could write through this whole COVID thing, because yeah. really, honestly, I don't know what the hell I would have done. Yeah, no kidding. All right, I'm going to throw some names out at you. Now, bear in mind, I got some of these off the internet, so we'll okay. <laughs> we'll see. But, I'll uh, play. We'll, we'll see if... It's like, pit, just pitch. I'll, you know, yeah. try to hit it. <laughs> so these are some collaborators or people you've performed with, maybe on albums, maybe on stage, maybe, yeah. maybe not at all. Alan Ginsberg. Well, Alan, I met... I first saw Alan when I was 13 years old because my sister's cool beatnik boyfriend took me to see him at the YMCA in New Jersey. <laughs> and he was reading William Blake. And it was like, wait a minute, I'm reading William Blake in, in, in school. And it was like, man, I, that really opened a door for me. And then I, I met Alan in New Mexico in the, maybe around 77. Uh, I would say that was 77 and uh, I got to play with him a little bit that night. And, uh, and then uh, I was here in New York writing my book on Ross on Roland Kirk in 1996 and uh, inter interviewing Hal Wilner. And he said, where do you want to do the interview? And I said, well, my, uh, my office is in the basement of a Moroccan import shop where I was hanging out with these Moroccan musicians a lot. That's where I met Bashir Attar from the Master Musicians of Shizuka. I said, why don't you come over? And so he came over and I told the, I told the musicians, I said, this guy's really, really great. He's really important. And he produced Marianne Faithful and Lou Reed and Sting and Tom Waits. And I said, why don't we like 
make some really great food for when he comes over and the minute he walks in the door just hit him with the music right so he came walking in the shop and it was like this is your life bam you know <laughs> and and we just started playing and he just sat down and was sitting there listening smiling looking around you know having a little bit to eat we played like a ha a set or a half a set of moroccan music for him and uh we did the interview. It was great. And about two days later, uh, Wilner calls me at like one in the morning and goes, ah, Kruth, what do you think about bringing your guys over to play at this show with Alan that I'm doing? And I'm like, uh, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's like, Wilner. And I go, and who's Alan? Ginsburg. I was like, Oh yeah, that would be great. So uh, Alan was reading his poetry at Saint uh, at Saint Mark's Church, which is right around the corner in the village. A very famous church that has had readings for years of great poets. And and uh, all of a sudden, the next thing I know, the Moroccan guys are like, "Well, let's bring some rugs and some lanterns," and they just set the stage, and and uh, we're up there playing this Moroccan music, and Alan's reading about Tangier and reading about you know having sex with Moroccan boys and doing all this dope and all this stuff, and you know afterwards, Abdul Latif comes up to me and goes. Why does he say these things? I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe they happen, but why, why does he say them to people? And I said, because he's Allen Ginsberg. That's what he does. <laughs> so, uh, Alan, uh, I got to interview Alan for my Rastan Roland Kirk book. And, um, it was one of the great joys of my life to know Allen Ginsberg and to have played with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, Elliot Sharp. Uh, I had met Elliot on the road with 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 uh, uh, Brian, I believe, when we were both S when we were all on SST, mm -hmm. and uh, always loved his guitar playing. Just adored his guitar playing. Uh, the master musicians came to town and were playing at uh, what do you call it, the Knitting Factory, for like three or four nights in a row, and every night uh, Elliot was we were backstage and Elliot was over there and I was over here. And, uh, I think on the second night we started to talk a little bit on the third night. It was like, uh, I don't know if it was three or four nights, but by the, by the end of it, we decided to do a, an album together. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that was noodle shop. And I was always tight with the guys from, uh, most of the guys from camper van Beethoven and, uh, and Jonathan Sieg, Seagal was in town and Jonathan Seagal was, uh, you know, a, a great multi-instrumentalist. There's three multi-instrumentalists in that band, uh, Jonathan, myself and Elliot. And, uh, and then we had this Turkish drummer that, uh, Attila who had played with, uh, Don Cherry. And we just went in the studio and cut that album in one afternoon. You should track it down if you can. It's really a good album. Elliot's got it on his band camp page. Okay. Um, it's called, uh, we were, we called the band Noodle Shop. It's called Moondog Girl. And we did, we've done some live shows uh, uh, with Billy Ficka playing uh, drums with us. So it, it's, it's, it, it rears its lovely head from time to time. 
Okay. King Missile. Oh, well, John is my next door neighbor now. Uh-huh. Uh, John, John S. Hall lives two doors down the hall. And uh, uh, John and Dog Bowl, uh, Stephen Tunney, Dog Bowl, uh, they both lived on Bleecker Street. Um, I think I was doing one of my shows. I used to produce a show called Imagine No Handguns in New York, uh, raising money, of course, to try to stop the madness and uh, had some really incredible people doing John Lennon songs, uh, uh, whether it was Sid Straw or Leroy Jenkins playing Across the Universe, I think Steve Toure and John Schofield and Mark Rebo and Elliot Sharp, all kinds of great people came and played these benefits. And uh, I love King Missile and, and knew John could really scream. You know, I knew John was a great screamer. So uh, I thought, well, who better than than John to do Just Give Me Some Truth? Right. So I had John come in and do Just Give Me Some Truth, and he was great. And I knew Dog Bowl, and I think at some point they stopped talking to each other or had a falling out, and they both lived on the same damn block. And I was like, okay, you guys, when is this going to happen again? You know, when, when, when is King Missile going to happen? And I said, what if I get Billy Ficka and Dave Drywitz from Ween as the rhythm section mm-hmm. with me, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and what if we get that together? And so we did a couple of shows with that band and that was, uh, it was great. John's an amazing poet and an amazing, I've done a lot of just duo things with John Okay. and, uh, so I love King Missile, and yeah, you know, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, you've mentioned him, mentioned him already, but John Prine. Well, yeah, John Prine. Of course, I adored John Prine as a singer songwriter in the seventies. He used to go down to Chicago to see him play with Steve Goodman in the early nineteen seventy three. I think was the first time I saw him. Really admired him quite a bit, and. Uh, I uh, was friends with Jim Rooney, who I met through Eric von Schmidt, and uh, those guys were from the came up in the up in Cambridge, and and Rooney had produced a couple of albums of uh, Towns Van Zandt and and John Prine, and he had invited me down to uh, Nashville, where I got to know John and shoot pool with him and hang out with him, and we got in a car and drove to Muhlenberg County to see where Paradise paradise lay i wrote an article about it for musician magazine it didn't seem to bother john very much but his manager al Benetta, who was i'll be i'll be very polite and just say he was rather fiery Mm. uh basically ripped my head off for a few things i said in that article and i that's when i stopped actually writing for a while because i was like well if it's going to bring people misery i don't want to have any part of that Mm -hmm. and uh and then uh, when i was in milwaukee there was a promoter there named peter jest who worked with violent femmes and did a lot and had a really cool club called shank hall and and he put me on as the opening act with john for a couple of shows and so i i knew john and interviewed john maybe six eight times over the years open for him a bunch of times played with him over at his house uh i can't like 
all I can say was that he had a singular sense of humor. Yeah. He, he was just a blast to hang out with and funny as goddamn hell. I mean, early on in the eighties, when I was first around him, he was drinking a lot and I would have to go home and take a nap by four (laughs) o'clock, you know, and then maybe meet up with him later. And I had a couple of interesting experiences with him. Uh, one, I, I'm writing a memoir right now, uh, and and I, I had a, a couple of really great stories. Uh, one involves John, Joan Jett and the Crusher, all at, not the Crusher, uh, uh, Hulk Hogan, all at the same time. <laughs> All right, well, we'll wait that we'll wait for that story until the memoir comes yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, it's pretty hysterical. <laughs> All right, Patty Smith. Well, Patty, I met Patty at the Bowery Poetry Club. I, I was playing with Peter Stample from the Holy Modal Rounders. We had a duo for a, a while, and uh, we had a I think it was a Thursday night at the Bowery Poetry Club. And uh, Sam Shepard had just come back to town and um, they came over to see us play. It really, it really was turning into a nice little scene. It was me and Peter and we had a couple of backup musicians and uh, Sam, Patty and Bob Newerth all came in. (laughs) You know, I was like, they were sitting over on the side there and, uh, uh, we were doing Factory Girl by the Rolling Stones uh, on banjo and fiddle and, and uh, mandolin, you know, and uh, Peter's, Peter's got that scratchy voice, you know. Yeah. And so we were singing, uh, doing Factory Girl. And I just said, OK, so which one of you rich and famous people over there want to, like, come sit in on a song? And Patty yells out, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, factory girl. And she's like, you know, I said something like something you can relate to factory girl. (laughs) And she, she just came marching right up. She was wearing a wife beater t-shirt and, and Peter and I were sitting next to each other on chairs or stools. And she kind of came up and put one cheek on one seat and one cheek on the other seat and put her arms around us (laughs) hairy armpits and all and (laughs) and and sang with us at one point i had a mandolin solo like in the middle of the song and i and she you know she sang third harmony with us it was really great i have it Uh, i have a recording of it it was really great and uh here i am playing a mandolin solo and right in the middle of the solo she's chewing gum (laughs) And she takes the gum and she holds it between her front teeth and she pulls it out as far as her arm can go and then sucks it right back into her face. (laughs) And the place went bats. (laughs) So after that, um, uh, Sam Shepard joined me and Peter in our little group. But I wanted him to play drums. He was a pretty good drummer, you know. And um, I wanted him to play drums, but he wanted to play guitar. And he had just bought this new really nice guitar over at, uh, at Umanoff's Guitar. And uh, one day, uh, my lovely wife, um, she 
came home to see Sam Shepard sitting on the couch here in our Greenwich Village apartment and me giving Sam a guitar lesson. And she she was never too gaga over most of these people that I played with or hung, hung out with or was around. But when she walked into her apartment and saw Sam Shepard sitting on the couch without, you know, unexpectedly, she was kind of gobsmacked for a moment there. Uh, it was interesting because a lot of people were constantly gobsmacked over Sam. Okay, Steve Buscemi. Uh, well, again, Hal Wilner, Hal Wilner was uh, one of the great touchstones of New York City and wherever he was, California, wherever he was, Europe. Uh, Hal brought people together in the most remarkable ways. Anytime the phone rang and it was Hal Wilner, I was thrilled, yeah. even if it was one or two in the morning, because he would usually call very late at night with like some kind of harebrained scheme, <laughs> you know, and it was uh, always, it always turned into something fantastic. And um, he called me to play on the tribute he hated that word um uh, on the concert for uh uh edgar Allan poe at saint anne's warehouse in brooklyn and um he had done that album great great album closed on a count of rabies hmm. uh the edgar Allan poe album and he was doing it live and he called me to play various instruments. I think I played mandolin and recorder and maybe harmonica. You know, with Wilner, there was very little rehearsal time. There was no extra tickets. My wife couldn't even come to the show. Uh, It was completely sold out. It was in the old St. Anne's. It wasn't in the warehouse. It was in the cathedral. And it was amazing. And it was Halloween. (laughs) And it was Edgar Allan Poe. And there, pinch me, please. Sorry to sound like fanboy, but I was up on stage with, I adore Karen Mantler. She's really wonderful. She played harmonica. And uh, Eric Mingus was playing bass. And I was playing recorder and mandolin and on organ was um, Garth Hudson. Wow. And on, I believe he was playing viola was uh, uh, John Cale. Wow. And uh, on his knees in front of the audience, you know, I don't know if he was holding a skull or not. I don't, I can't remember. Maybe he was just holding the microphone on his knees was Steve Buscemi uh, reciting, uh, I believe it was the Annabelle Lee. I believe he was reciting the Annabelle Lee or it was the Raven. I can't remember because I I know that Kale, maybe Kale did uh, Annabelle Lee. And, and I, yeah, now that I remember, it was Kale doing Annabelle Lee and uh, Steve Buscemi reciting The Raven. And he fell to his knees at one point. And it was like, I'll tell you, Matt, it was a really great dream. Yeah. John, where can people find you online? Do you, 
Do you have a I'm band really, camp? Uh, I'm, uh, I had johncruz.com for years and uh, it wasn't doing much and I kind of forgot to renew it and it turned into a German dating service. <laughs> hey. So, yeah, John Cruz will set you up with all of those wonderful fraulines. Um, so uh, I am like very easy to find in the Facebook world. Uh, K-R-U-T-H is my last name. I also have a page as John Von Kruth, uh in honor of my dearly departed friend, Eric Von Schmidt. I started using Von Kruth for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, so y- you can find me on Facebook and, you know, Google and all that stuff. And one of these days, maybe I'll do John Von Kruth as a, as a, uh, as a new page. I don't know. I remember at one point, Violent Femmes forgot to renew their, their page and it became a, uh, for a, a brief time, I, I think it became a porn site called Violent Femmes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Sure, happy to. All right, man. So, going from Flo and Eddie and the Femmes to Ornette Coleman, Roy Orbison, John and Yoko. Just awesome. Yeah. Like totally, totally unexpected, but fascinating. And I've got to check out his books. I have read a few Roy Orbison biographies. I have not read John's and it is, it's going to be, uh, on my list. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't read any, any of his books either, but, uh, I'm, I'm planning to do that. Um, especially that one about Rasan Roland Kirk. I bet you that's really interesting. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, the, the whole, the whole, it's, it, it just like at the end of that interview and talking about Rasan too throughout just made it seem like there is this multi-instrumentalist scene or multi-instrumentalist ethos that I have no awareness of really, you mm-hmm. know, that, that was really interesting to hear John talk about like, you know, I'm not, I'm not even a mandolin player. You know, I am a multi-instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, and he's, I mean, you don't get to play with the kind of people he he has played with without this being true, but he's very proficient on every instrument that he plays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying super hard to track down some of his solo stuff, too. Mm. It's, uh, it's not easy to find. Well, I do like the name of his first album, Midnight Snack. Yeah. That's that just like when you listen to John and you're like, oh, that dude totally named his first album Midnight Snack <laughs> for sure. One thing you can hear that's cool uh, is the Noodle Shop band that he had with Elliot Sharp. Moondog Girl is the album. It has its own band camp page. Ah. It's really good. I just had my pen out like the whole time he was talking. Yeah. Just writing shit down. He's writing a memoir too, so you know he's holding back great stories for that. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh, it was totally just multiple tips of the iceberg yeah. during the interview for sure. Yeah. So Ryan, like the artwork's almost identical, I think, to last week's. It's just the title on the front cover is Adam Krieg. That's it. Yeah. Other than that, it's the exact same. And I mean, <laughs> technically speaking, the back of the jacket it says nuclear war. Deutsch, nuclear war, English, instead of nuclear war and alphabet, but that's it. It is identical. 
I was just cracking up listening to that Deutsch version, though. He sounds yep. like an angry German. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. I would say so. <laughs> Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So what do you think, Brent? Do you sprechen the Deutsch or Anglais? Uh, I think I think Deutsch. Yeah? Why not? Schnell. Yeah. <laughs> hey, John, thanks for being on the show, man. It was super great yeah. having John Cruth on. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to get to the next Brian Ritchie record, which he plays on. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we're going back to one of our faves on the show. It's SST 188, the Screaming Trees Invisible Lantern LP. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Mark Pickrell's on the show. Oh, cool. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.